What is realist liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Andrew Sobel. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Andrew Sobel. Andrew is Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto. His research interests include democratic and liberal theory, toleration, realist political thought, political ethics, and the history of political thought, especially David Hume and the Scottish Enlightenment. He has three books out and numerous articles and book chapters on subjects including realist political theory, toleration, political ethics, democratic theory, civil disobedience, and, as mentioned, David Hume's political thought. Andrew, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you on. So, Andrew, we base each of our episodes on a question and go wherever the conversation, discussion, and answers take us. Our question today that frames our episode is, what is realist liberalism? And I think we should start unpacking what you mean by that term. And I I realized as I was reading through some of your materials to prepare for this podcast, too, that a lot of what I think we're going to be doing today is unpacking a bunch of things that you mean about the term and, and things that fill into that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a bit of a, a quote here, a pillar for conversation, and then I, I'm going to ask you some follow-up questions. So I'm going to read that out here. So you say, most liberal theorists I submit look for liberal values in all the wrong places. Standard rationalist or high liberals obsess about the legitimate powers and proper limits of the so-called state and seek more agreement on the proper justification of those powers and limits than a modern diverse society can possibly yield. On the other hand, classical liberals, whose most famous recent exemplar was Hayek, rightly start with individuals and their diverse needs, with a complex society and its widely dispersed sources of information. So there's a lot there, and I kind of want to use it to tease a couple of ideas out, especially for those who might not be familiar with these. So let's start here, and then we'll work our way to what you mean by realist liberal. Can you unpack what you mean by rationalist liberal in the context you just discussed and what you mean by them obsessing about the legitimate powers of the state? And that's where their heads are at. Can you frame that for us first? Sure. Yeah, there is. So there is a lot in those quotes that were kind of uh, summary quotes of a lot of my work, in, including my article on realist liberalism that um, that I assume is is maybe where that's from, or at least a jumping off point. Um, so um, here's here's what's going on. The what has come to be called liberalism in the profession of political theory, which is my field of study, uh, is, is in some ways, Michael Frieden has pointed this out, is in some ways very different from the tradition of liberal thought, from what actual thinkers who call themselves liberal, actual parties that call themselves liberal, or, you know, or similar names, you know, the Free X or the, you know, the Citizens Radical Party or whatever. Um, you know, have ha, it's very different from what those liberal parties or or, or movements or thinkers have actually advocated. Um, it's essentially a neo-Kantian form of liberalism, associated above all with John Rawls, um, the late political philosopher, um, but also with figures like Ronald Dworkin and uh, Jerry Cohen uh, has a left-wing version of it. Uh, a more libertarian version of it was um, was the um, the late Jerry Gauss, uh, recently departed. Um, and on this perspective, uh, the central question is, um, you know, how can the institutions of the state and society be justified? Um, and the, the, essentially, there, there is this sort of Kantian anxiety that we are autonomous. And how can you justify state and social institutions that constrain our autonomy? Well, the only way you could possibly do it is by addressing our reason, right? So in this 
sort of Rousseauian, Kantian dodge. If we're subject to a law that is endorsed by our reason, then that doesn't count as illegitimate constraint or coercion. That counts as, that in some ways embodies our autonomy, embodies our reason. Now, that greatly oversimplifies a bunch of thinkers who would articulate this basic uh, framework in very different ways. Uh, there's a distinction between the reasonable and the rational that's very important for Rawls and his followers. Um, but this basic centrality of justification based on, a, on an anxiety about autonomy, you know, an idea that we should be autonomous and therefore the only way of limiting our autonomy is to address our reason and justify institutions to our reason. That is the basis, I think, of most modern liberal political philosophy and, and political theory. Again, very different from what ordinary people might understand as liberal commitments to you know, individualism, to choice, to diversity, um, to um, allowing people to develop their own life plans um, in the million version, a kind of nonconformity. Um, all those are uh, actually surprisingly optional from this um, rationalist or high liberal perspective. Um, which in some versions actually presupposes a fair degree of um, of congruence between human uh, purposes. Okay, and actually you started a bit into it there, but let's get into that then. So you talked about sort of the rationalist liberal, if you will, for the sake of this conversation. Then on the other side, you said, uh, you know, you have that sort of classical liberal perspective and how it starts with the individualist view. So can you contrast that a little more with, with the rationalist liberal? Like I said, we'll get to realist liberalism in a sec, but I want to put these two on the, either side for a second. Right. So, um, you know, so in that piece on realist liberalism, I say I'm starting from the Scottish rather than the German Enlightenment. Um, which is a horrible oversimplification. And there were German thinkers who, you know, thought like classical liberals. And um, I don't know if the reverse was true, but I'm sure in some cases it was. The, um, but what I mean is, you know, as opposed to neo-Kantian liberalism, there is this uh, liberalism, this classical liberalism associated with figures of like Hume and Smith and, you know, explicitly admired by someone like Hayek that starts with um, a diversity of human interests um, it starts with people who may have, you know, very different purposes from one another. This is ex um, uh, especially prominent and explicit in Hayek, but um, you see versions of it. I've argued in Hume's History of England. I've written a book about Hume called Hume's Politics, um, where he says, you know, people want fundamentally quite different things out of life. They value different things. They know different things. Their frameworks are different. How do we start with that and come up with ways of settling uh, potential conflicts, um, lots of actual conflicts among people and their purposes uh, without resort to violence or with as little resort to violence as possible. Um, you know, the state does employ armies and police and so forth, but we don't want those to be the main things we rely on to reconcile or, you know, at least let us live with one another's purposes. Um, and for Hayek, the, you know, the main institution for doing that is the market, right? That only um, that the market um, is able to take account of people's different purposes, different preferences, different kinds of knowledge in a way that other social institutions can't. And I actually disagree with that, right? That's, the, that's a central disagreement between me and this tradition. I don't think the market is privileged in this way. I think all the institutions of uh, liberal society and politics do this in their own different way. Representative democracy does it, uh, mass political parties, the rule of law, the welfare state, institutions of free speech and discussion, religious toleration. All these are essentially institutions for reconciling our clashing purposes and preferences. Reconciling may be a big word, uh, accommodating our different purposes and preferences, allowing them to flourish by our different lights without insisting 
that we ever agree on a common normative framework, a common moral reason why these institutions are good or how they should work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to press a little bit more into that exact thought towards the end of what you're saying there in just a second. But but before we leave that first part of our conversation, all that to say, so you do sort of view, I don't think extremes is the right word, but again, the classical liberal perspective, if you will, in this context, in this conversation, and, and that rationalist liberal perspective, there's there's areas that both sort of de-emphasize, if you will, that you think they're they're missing a bit of um, important thinking on, I guess, if they just view it for, through that framework. As you were saying, the rationalist liberal talking obsessing quote over the legitimate powers of the state, whereas the classical liberal is always starting with that individualist view and obviously attaching a lot of what they're thinking is to the market and things. You, you think that on, on both these sides, there's something else that they're missing? Yes, I say that's true. I think they're both uh, missing uh, a great deal. I guess I would say that I think that the rationalist liberal uh, makes a big has has bigger conceptual problems. Um, I'm actually a skeptic about the existence of something called the state with a capital S. Um, you know, do we really think there's such a thing called the state that is this disembodied creature that you know that that um, embodies our common purposes and that speaks in one voice that you know justifying itself to us? That seems very unlikely. I believe in the state if that means if that's a sort of shorthand term for the civil servants and the governmental institutions and so forth. But this idealized version of the state, I think, should be ruthlessly um, interrogated, and I think has a pernicious effect. Um, similarly, I think autonomy is a philosophical fairy tale. Um, you know, not all of us grow up um, and, and clash with others, and all our purposes are pervasively um, structured by our encounters with others. And um, our ability to get what we want is always deeply, deeply dependent on what others want as well as on social circumstances. And that's true for um, the most independent, for the entrepreneur that regards himself or herself as uh, ruthlessly independent. It's true for that person as it is for, you know, a socialist who will never get anywhere unless others agree with uh, with socialism. Um, so I think, I, you know, the idealist liberal has bigger conceptual problems, believes in things that just don't exist, in my opinion, like the state and autonomy. Um, but I think the classical liberals have, um, bigger problems in their description of society, right? I mean, so um, idealist liberals are often, you know, give a pretty good list of the social institutions we live under, while um, mistakenly, in my view, demanding that um, there be a normative consensus regarding them and that they be justified to everyone living under them. Um, but classical liberals um, have a very great, have a terrific starting point, a terrific sort of metaphysical starting point in people's interests and the diversity of their interests and the diversity of their purposes, and then tend to shift very quickly to saying, well, there's, um, that means the market with a bit of rule of law and uh, don't, really look, um, don't really look clearly at or appreciate the reasons for uh, institutions that are absolutely necessary for furthering our diversity of interests, um, like the welfare state. Uh, various public goods, uh, representative democracy, and other things like that. Excellent. No, I think that sets us up very nicely to segue right into the next point that you you probably see is, is coming in this whole time as I've been teasing. But basically, okay, so we, we've set up both that rationalist liberal discussion, that classical liberal discussion. So then what then, based on the context that we've been talking about, is, is the realist liberal too? You've already touched on a couple of points, but like you, uh, you know, you've noted that it's neither anti-state or anti-market, but anti-mystification. I, I I hear a bit of that tone starting in your answer there. So give us your best case for what the ra uh, the excuse me the realist liberal is, and then I can ask some follow-up questions. But at a high level, if I say Andy, what's the realist liberal then? If if these other two extremes, if you will, are not where people sh should have their minds at, right? So um, there's a couple of different ways of getting at at realism, and I, I've written I've written up my um, approach to it in a couple of different ways. One which is 
a little bit sort of history of ideas like as well as a bit of autobiography um, as to how I came to it. And then another that uh, the, that situates it in uh, the movement of political theory that has grown up in the last 15 or 20 years that calls itself realist um, or realism or political realism, um, which is different from realism in international relations, um, by the way, although there's there certainly parallels and crossovers, but I, I, it is it is different. It's a movement in, within uh, political theory, within uh, broadly a normative political theory. Um, so autobiographically, you know, when I went to graduate school at uh, Harvard in, in the 90s, I guess it was the tail end of this tradition. Um, my original advisor, Judith Schlar, died after my first year of graduate school. But um, there was a strong tradition of at Harvard um, that um, can be called realist, that I, I, I would call realist and others have called realist looking at some of the individual figures, though I don't think it's ever been written up as a common trend except in this one article by me. Um, and, and aspects of this were a focus on history, a focus on um, actual institutions, uh, both empirical political scientists and political theorists in Harvard's department at the time were focused on history. This is before the sort of statistical and quantitative trend in political science had uh, taken over. Harvard was one of the last places it took over actually. Um, and um, um, so there was a focus on history, on institutions, on uh, the workings of power, on uh, human interests. Um, and um, there was, and this is actually different from the kinds of realism that have become common in Britain. Uh, there was a focus on political theory and political science actually uh, being very close together, having a lot to contribute to one another. The, how um, an understanding of how institutions develop of, of how, um, of how you know, forms of, of social life um, change under the pressure of technology and social forces and how institutions try to accommodate that, um, a way that institutions can be structured to limit abuses of power, um, discussions about American political development, about um, the, the way in which the American constitution developed and changed over time and the institutions it defined uh, developed and changed over time. These were common to political science in the department and to political theory. Um, and that's different, I think. In the British version, there's very little sense that realist political theory has anything much to do with political science. In, in Britain, it developed at Cambridge, which for a long time didn't even have a department of political science. So it couldn't have been allied with political science. But at Harvard, these things were, were put together. So focus on, on institutions, on power, on interests. I should mention a focus on individual agency, on the perspective of um, actual political actors. Here, I would mention Richard Neustadt, the presidency scholar. Um, who studied the presidency, but didn't study it from a thousand mile perspective. He studied it from the perspective of presidents, how they can accomplish what they want to do, maybe to a fault, right? Maybe worship the strong presidency far more than I would. But that was, you know, that was the perspective. So that's one thing that I came out of. And I was actually very surprised, maybe not naively so, I now realize, but this is before the internet and uh, before you could really find out that much about the wide world of intellectual life. I, I was actually surprised when I got out of graduate school to find that in most places, political theorists and empirical political scientists had very little in common, had you know, come to form very different worlds, um, often political theorists influenced by the new left and by um, alienation from American political institutions, um, whereas, um, or else by Rawls and a very idealistic view of those institutions, very rationalist view. And the political scientists were studying institutions if they were studying them at all from the perspective of statistics and um, you know, testing um, but, you know, causal claims and uh, against large uh, data sets. Again, I know this seems shockingly naive at the time if you read, you know, any, uh, you know, tiny history of, of political science, you know, the behavioral revolutions, just stats had 
you know, taken over political science in most departments long before um, I graduated, but I didn't know that, right? Back then it was easy to be a little bit clueless about that. Um, not, I wasn't totally clueless, but I didn't realize the extent to which it happened. Um, from the perspective of this um, movement of political realism, I've already said a little bit about how I'm, how I'm not like that, but um, you know, uh, realism in political theory or political realism grew out of uh, dissatisfaction, in, especially in Britain, that figures like Raymond Goyce and Bernard Williams uh, declared with figures like Rawls and, um, and Terry Cohen, who at the time was the um, that uh, fancy professor at Oxford, how is that pronounced, Tertelli? Um, um, never found out how that's supposed to be pronounced. Um, and um, in opposition to that, they stressed um, the centrality of, of power and interest to explaining politics. They were skeptical about the idea that, uh, that moral principles were universal and could be applied to society. Uh, skeptical of the idea that is that political theory could be applied ethics. Um, and um, in the Cambridge version, um, they also tended to be extremely strongly historical, right? They tended to talk about the ways in which principles reflected the circumstances of a particular time, reflected the political debates and the social forces that were prevalent in a political time, and that the principles, and therefore saying that the principles of one time could not be neatly applied to another. There, I, I dissent from the mainstream of that kind of realism. I'm a little bit, though slightly skeptically, I'm a little bit scientific. I think that human beings can learn which institutions roughly, you know, work. They can tinker with them over time. They can figure out which things work better than others. They can try to make adjustments over time. And we can know more about various institutions and practices than people in the past knew. Um, for instance, uh, you know, my example is that it used to, freedom of religion um, used to be counterintuitive, right? Uh, how can you have people who disagree over this ultimate question of who is damned? Right. Surely they're going to fight each other. Um, and only later through experience do we, did we find that toleration actually works better than trying to create uniformity um, in a complex modern society. That's not deductively obvious. That became obvious through experience. But we now learned that that's possible. We know that when we didn't. Something similar is true of free speech. It was once counterintuitive that sedition, challenging governmental authority, um, was a good idea, right? You know, it was once thought, you know, intuitive by John Adams, for instance, that it was, you know, good to ban the ideas of those who, um, who thought that the government was awful and illegitimate and tyrannical and so forth. Um, now we think that we're better off allowing people to criticize the government than trying to imprison those who do so. But it's not a ridiculous position to think that sedition is a danger to public order, right? You're saying that the people who run the army and the police are, you know, corrupt, have designs of tyranny and so forth. Um, shouldn't that endanger, you know, the public peace? Isn't that an invitation to anarchy? It's not a implausibly, a deductively implausible position to think so. It's through experience with um, free speech and even, you know, robust and uncivil speech that we've come to realize that um, allowing it is better for all of us than banning it. Right, right. And there's, there's a lot to chew on there, especially at the last part of what you're saying there, too. So when we talk about the, um, for instance, the, the realist liberal, you know, as you said, and as I, I said earlier, too, neither anti-market, no anti-state, anti neither uh, too far into that individualist classical liberal view, nor too far into that sort of obsession the rationalist liberal has with the legitimate powers. It seems like 
at you know at the highest level that that realist liberal feels that they're navigating sort of um and coming to their own conclusions based on uh you know the, the tensions that they see from both point of views almost and coming to more real, realistic conceptions about you know as you said what institutions work either on on the state side if you will but also on the on the individualist side um it, it, it seems in other words that the realist lib, liberal point of view in, in some contexts sort of like answers like I don't want to say the worst parts but some of the the the, the overstepping on on either other on either side of the rationalist liberal the classical liberal and brings it more into a discussion about the tension and balance between them uh, yes I'd say that's true I, I don't think it's sort of squishy middle where I'm you know nearly in the middle for the sake of being that I've, right. I've I hope I've articulated how it's you know it happens to be in the middle I think by correcting what I regard as as quite serious errors on the rationalist side on the one hand and the class and a different error on the classical liberal side on the other right right yeah exactly yes I certainly don't mean to imply the, the middle in the sense of hey let you know some sort of diplomatic hey let's get along sort of middle that it's commonly right, exactly. used I sort of more mean that like yeah it's 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 sort of a bit of that um you know in between of these two positions but in the grander scheme of things it's certainly not like a quote-unquote like centrist position or something politically i don't mean to imply that so one thing i actually want to drill a, a little bit into especially for um our, our our classical liberal listeners of which there's a lot of and again i think it's it's great to get further into parsing through some of some of this stuff um especially when it talks about either you know, uh, and answering some of the things that you might view as either uh, missteps or, or, uh, or you know, going too far in one direction as far as one's thinking is concerned in the larger uh, liberal project, if you will. So I want to talk specifically about Hayek. I alluded to him in your quote at the very beginning, and I think this is going to be informative to, uh, to tease out some of your thoughts as well for realist liberalism. So you, you, you said, for example, Hayek, who's a, who's a stand-in for many type of classical liberal discussions, was, quote, let's start with this one, um right to take a Scottish rather than Kantian approach to liberalism. So he was right in that sense, but quote, wrong to portray the market as the great society's exclusive embodiment. Now you've already touched on this, but um, I want you to tease it out a little further because I think like when we, especially in the context of Hayek's thinking per se, so we talked about classical liberalism in general, but but Hayek, of course, was somebody who thought very specifically in this way. So if, if you want to dr drill into that a little further, I'd like to hear more of your thoughts. Sure. So um, I'll preface this by saying that I wish I were more of an expert specifically on Hayek than I am. Um, you know, I've read um, uh, several of his books, I hope reasonably carefully and a little bit of the commentary, but I'm not a proper Hayek scholar or expert. And in future work developing these ideas, I hope to become a, a better one. So um, I may I may put a foot wrong, <clears throat> and if you know real experts uh, feel that I have, they they may be right. And I, uh, but I think what I say has some provisional worth to it. So, um, right. So for you know for Hayek, um, you know the market is really you know the uh, fundamental way of uh, allowing people with different interests to live with one another, and even fascinatingly, if. Um, you look at some of his uh, comments about Cadillacy in uh, legislation liberty, even allowing people to further <clears throat> one another's purposes um, when those purposes are at odds. Um, and, you know, that he doesn't spell that out very much, but I sometimes if my students give the example of a bookstore, right? You can, you know, in a, in a bookstore, it's people can buy a book, you know, defending uh, Donald Trump on the one hand, the book defending, you know, Donald Sanders or AOC on the other and everything in between, every variation of that. Uh, they can buy books um, defending Catholic traditionalism and, you know, wild sexual license. Um, 
And but the nexus of the market in this bookstore, right? It makes it in the interest of everyone in the book uh, of the people running the bookstore to sell all these books, and the interest of everyone buying these diverse books to leave each other alone, right? And they might all rally to you know defend the bookstore if you know there's some um, you know outrageous regulation that wants to close it, or you know there's um, some reason, or, or simply it's it's undergoing trouble because it doesn't have enough customers. They might all say, we want this bookstore here. We want um, the ability to uh, find out um, you know, where, we can, uh, where we can buy books about our preferred ideas. We have that in common, even though those ideas themselves are profoundly at odds with one another. Um, so that's, um, so I, I think those, those ideas are, are terrifically right. right? I, and I think that people who express um, skepticism of the market, people who freely you know, throw out broadsides against capitalism, should really think about whether they would want the institutions of um, buying and selling and exchange generally to be controlled by the market or by the people through democratic means in some thoroughgoing sense, right? Would you really want collective determination of what can be sold in the bookstore, what kinds of clothing, clothing you can buy? Um, there's been very interesting work about how private enterprise was very good for the gay rights movement because people wanted to sell products, often sexually explicit products, to gay men, to lesbians and you know this became um it became in the interest of people to say here's some place you can go to pursue your lifestyle even if it's officially disapproved right um so um so that's that's profoundly um all that is profoundly right um some of the things that Hayek said about the rule of law though they've been you know rightly criticized in their details and i think you know he can't quite sustain some of his claims um the idea that the rule of law and here lawn fuller comes in as an important figure um, allows people to pursue their uh, diverse and uh, purposes rather than embodying, you know, a collective normative uh, view of how life should go. Uh, I think that's very important. Um, however, I, I, I was always impressed by reading this, but don't, don't all our other institutions do the same thing, right? So representative democracy, what, you know, you can, this can be and has been viewed in sort of entrepreneurial terms, not just by Schumpeter, but by figures who are much more associated with the left, like Lisa Dish. Uh, people put forth claims, they say, this is how we want you to understand, you know, your political interests. And, um, you know, we don't know what those claims are going to be, we can't predict what they're going to be. Uh, people can uh, form political parties and movements that are very different from those we would expect or want. And yet, it surely must be good for all of us if there's a grievance, if there's some sort of political opinion that um, is not currently represented and that we haven't heard of, so people like us, like you and me, it must be good if, they, if somebody who presents those grievances, who says, here's an injustice in society, is able to form a political party or a movement devoted to correcting that injustice. Um, the, um, I've mentioned uh, free speech, um, the welfare state, um, I think can also be seen as doing this. Now, granted, in Hayek, there's, you know, a, a, at least an acceptance of the welfare state. I wouldn't say a robust partisan advocacy of it, but he says, you know, he, he allows it. He's not uh, sort of an Ayn Rand um, opponent of the welfare state. Um, but to really understand the welfare state, one way of understanding it is that there are many ideological justifications for the welfare state, you know, by socialists and social democrats or by you know, a certain kind of left-wing liberal like Bertrand Russell, um, one can do it that way. But the reason that the welfare state actually persists in all advanced democracies, basically all rich societies have robust welfare states, um, is that it allows people, people can support it for many different and often incompatible reasons. 
right? Some people can support the welfare state um, because, you know, it sustains the family in various ways, you know, through child allowances and so forth. Um, the U.S. hasn't had robust child allowances, but that's a usual part of the welfare state, actually. Um, others because it leads towards greater equality, although socialists who think everybody believes in the welfare state for that reason tend to be disappointed. They tend to find that uh, most of their fellow citizens are not actually embracing equality about them. Um, other people because it allows for a basic kind of security in the face of the uncertainties of the market, um, possible reverses. There's even, you know, interesting libertarian, left libertarian defenses of, uh, of wage insurance, as you probably know that people will be more willing to accept changes in the market if you compensate them for part of their lost wages when they change jobs. Um, that, you know, is a different, very different justification for the welfare state from that of socialists. Um, and yet it could motivate, you know, certain similar policies surrounding unemployment insurance and so on. So um, all these institutions, I think, you know, can be seen as having a similar, uh, similar purpose. And you get in Hayek and Hayekian's an idealization of the market on the one hand, where questions of, you know, of, of monopoly and corporate power are left to one side. Um, and you get, but you get a very um, one-sided uh, portrayal of, again, you know, the state or some sort of planner. And you can understand why Hayek in his context thought that central planning, you know, was a, was a real danger, had been a real danger in his time. I'm not I'm denying that, but there's very few defenders of Soviet central planning, even on the left nowadays. Right, exactly. So you, you get a kind of, um, you know, uh, mustache villain view of the state. Um, and rather than uh, seeing various institutions that are associated with government, representative democracy, political parties, the welfare state, rather than seeing them as ways that, like the market, we can um, further our diverse and potentially clashing interests. No, and, and actually, I have a follow-up to that uh, immediate to what you just said there, but it is about the time to take our break. So we're going to do that first. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Andrew Sobel today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Chris Rondolo, Peter Jaworski, and Randy T. Simmons. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Andrew Sobel today. So, Andy, I think the conversation in the first half was, was really great. Um, you know, we, we touched on a lot of things. And just at the tail end of what, what you were talking about, we were talking about Hayek specifically and the Hayeki mentality about, you know, the state and on the one hand and the market on the other. So, uh, what, what you kind of so, said is can kind of give you the view of that sort of mustache twirling villain of the state on the one hand and like the sort of mystified version of the market on the other at times. I think that's a very, very good point. Um, I want to round off that part of our conversation by saying that and I think you're already touching on it, but I want to put a finer point on it. So you said that actually there is sort of a, quote, Hayekian way to see non-market institutions. And I think you were sort of getting into that. So, so what exactly do, do you mean by that? Because that was very interesting in, in the uh, in, in the essay I was reading that you said that there, there is a way ultimately that these uh, like non-market institutions can sort of uh, satisfy and work in sort of Hayekian ways. Yeah. So um, 
so that is a very interesting thing. And, and by the way, once again, I don't want to claim that I am the, uh, the only expert on how this is done. There are um, there's a literature on sort of uh, left Hayekianism, which I've downloaded some of, but not sufficiently uh, read. So if I seem to be, uh, you know, neglecting other people's work, I will admit to that. I need to uh, look more at that. Um, my uh, former Yale colleague, Ellen Vandemore, I know is, is uh, sympathetic in some ways to the idea that uh, that democracy can be understood in Hayekian ways as aggregating information. Um, um, I think for, you know, sort of academic politics reasons, she doesn't stress the Hayekianism of it, but I, um, I, uh, she and I have talked about the potential affinities there. Um, so, you know, so there's a couple of different ways in which you can view it. So one way is in terms of information, right? And I tried to, I touched on that a little bit in talking about representative democracy, right? Um, so one thing, one underestimated thing that representative democracy does is it lets people know that there's a constituency for a certain type of political demand that they may have made, that they may have thought was, you know, marginal, unimportant, you know, they may have vaguely heard of it, but they think it's a bunch of pranks on media that they, that we don't watch. But if a party or a politician does well in democratic elections, um, this is something that we can learn from. Right. And this is something that actually happens. Right. You know, people then have arguments about, you know, should we pursue this person's voters or should we say, no, we want to pursue the opposite of this person's voters because we hope they're few and, you know, we want to contain them. And, and these are the kind of debates that people have that they wouldn't have if the person hadn't, if the person, the entrepreneur, as it were, the new political party or politician hadn't drawn their attention to this potential constituency. You know, if you make this sort of political claim, people actually like it. They 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 buy it, so to speak, um, in a telling um, sort of metaphor that we use all the time. Um, do you buy that? Means um, do you believe it? Right. right. Yeah, you, that's a really um, good point. In, in favor of that. Um, the um, um, so that's one way you can look at things in Hayekian terms. Um, in my work so far, I haven't so much stressed that. I've stressed the aspect of Hayek, um, as said, it, um, of, of Cadillacy, of the idea that, which is this term that he kind of coins based on a fairly obscure Greek word, um, of, you know, um, reconciling a diverse and potentially clashing interest. And um, he claims, though I actually haven't looked up this usage, that Cadillacy is also the Greek word for turning enemies into friends. Um, I don't know if that's true actually in the ancient Greek sources, but I, I hope it's true because that would be wonderful. Um, so um, the um, so the idea is that you know again it could be seem intuitive that yeah I think you know we have these people over here who think uh, you know this person should be president, and there's this group of people over here who think the other person should be president. And, um, you know, these two presidents propose to do opposite things with government policy. Um, and their supporters hope that, you know, hope for the presidency to do opposite things. You know, the partisans of one, you know, greatly disagree on policy with the partisans of the other. Um, well, um, you know, how are we going to settle this? Um, a very common way to settle this in human history and still in many places, um, you know, throughout the globe is through arms, right? We have a war over which, which of our strongmen is going to succeed. Um, where representative democracy is functioning well, we don't we we don't do that. Um, we have procedures called elections that select the president. Also, delimit this person's powers, right? So, when reason 
we're willing to accept loss in elections, is that the president will not gain the power to uh, sick an arbitrary army on, on his enemies or her enemies and you know kill them or imprison them arbitrarily. There's an agreement that the people who supported the loser will be around and will be able to try again next time. And there's all kinds of other constraints on executive power and on, on legislative power and so forth. Uh, we have all these institutions we've developed to do this. And we have, again, though it seems counterintuitive that I would support, in some sense, the existence and power of someone whose policies, I think, are, are completely wrong, right, or the opposite of the policies I think should be pursued. So I, I, oppose, I oppose their being in power, and yet I support their being in power, contingent on their having won the election. Right. This used to be called the paradox of democracy. There were a lot of philosophers in the 60s who couldn't quite figure out how this worked. How can I how can I oppose this person's being in power and still support his being in power? Does that make sense? I think it's because they didn't understand institutions. Right. I think that the institutional form of structuring elections this way, limiting the um, limiting the scope of governmental power in this way, we have greater allegiance to those than we do to our contingent policies. At least I hope we do. Uh, things work better when we do. Uh, I'm not sure that in the United States that is necessarily working as well as it should be, um, but um, it is. I, I I hope we can make it work and sustain it over time because um, I think this developed because we do much better that way than if we have, um, you know, partisan clashes, um, petty or grand warfare with violence over over political power. Uh, we're all better off if we structure power and limit it in this way. That makes a lot of sense. And and I also like your point there, too, about elections, like, you know, um, be, being sort of information that perhaps you can't get otherwise, or at least not as clear and concisely as, and you sort of said the, the entrepreneur, if you will, you said of, of the of the political realm sort of maybe gets a bunch of people together with a voice that someone might not have thought otherwise, you know, even there to begin with. I find that very interesting because even when you look at what happened over the last few election cycles, specifically with, with Donald Trump, you know, the narrative is often structures is like, well, how could, you know, these polls got that wrong? How could we have known that such and such people were here thinking these things? And there's a lot of that kind of happening. And, and it's very interesting to note that instead of always looking at these things, I mean, not saying that we do or any of our listeners do, I'm just saying there are people that do look at it this way, where instead of looking at these things as either accidents or anomalies or something that's just silly, it's like, well, you're getting information, right? Like these, these institutions are not only putting people in power, as you're saying, but you're also revealing things about things in the society either that you agree with or disagree with people you agree with or disagree with. So I think it's a very powerful idea to look at this as a source of information and sorting as well as just like a a way to put someone in a chair somewhere. I think that's a very important point. Thanks. And as I said, it's not completely original with me, but I think there's lots of room for fleshing it out, for figuring out um, how that does supply information um, and, and maybe you know help supplement the conceit of pollsters and political scientists that they understand it all. Um, and and you know, and even an excellent political science is relying on scientists is relying on data, at least we hope um, is relying on data. But data are about the past. Right. And even if they were right about the way that um, political demands uh, fit together in the past, things could have changed, um, especially on the margins, which is where politics, uh, where, where elections are won or lost. You know, five or 10 percent of the population sees, starts seeing its political identity, its political interests a little differently than it had. Um, that can mean a really big change. And the only way you'll know it is if um, an attempt to gain political power that way succeeds um, or at least to gain political support that way, even if it falls short of, um, you know, a majority or whatever. I'm going to present an objection here that some people might be thinking of and 
I, I mean, I personally don't agree with it, so I don't want to certainly don't want to present it as sort of like an aha by, from my perspective by any means. But, you know, we, we've talked about how things that non-market institutions can do and the, the, the sort of trapdoor like response that a lot of people say is like, well, maybe they can do that. We're not denying that this would be more from like a classical liberal or more market perspective. They're saying it's just that the market can do it better each and every time almost. And it seems like you would you would disagree with that, though, is that that's not a proper way of looking at things like you wouldn't deny, for example, that the market can do such and such that a public institution can do such and such. It, it would seem to me that you would actually question at the very least the idea that the market can do something better each time. Yes, I would. I would question the dogmatic belief that it does that the market does things better each time. Um, I think all these institutions um, are subject to um, distortions, biases. Um, they can all be, um, you know, as I said, that their purpose might be to further indefinite interests, to further everyone's interests. Um, but there's two, there's two problems. I mean, first of all, they often uh, further people's interests unequally. Um, we know that to be true of the market, right? We talk about bargaining games where there's a surplus to be gained from exchange, but then, you know, people, one party gains more from the exchange than others. You can be a Parisian uh, you can be a skeptic about that Pareto style, and yet it often seems quite clear that if one party is walking away with a million dollars from a trade, the other party is walking away with five dollars. They both gained, but the person with a million dollars has gained in some you know, intuitive sense more and also may in a position over time be, be in a position over time to use that million dollars and the other million dollars they've gained from other trades and exert power over those with um, who gained less power, either bar either bargaining power or power to skew the political system um, to exert social and political power. Um, so, um, you know, in the market that's familiar, I think there are, I don't, probably don't have time to get into it here. I think there are analogies uh, for other institutions that they can, you know, in, in various ways, benefit people um, universally, but quite unequally. Um, and um, so, you know, for instance, uh, the rule of law, we're all better off with the rule of law than we are under, you know, um, anarchy or, you know, um, universal banditry. Um, even the would-be bandits are better off, by the way, right? They can grab things for a while, but then they'll be killed if there's no, you know, state, um, which, which is why gangsters in their old age often try to go straight, right? They often rely on their legitimate businesses and uh, take shelter under the law um, rather than, you know, uh, getting shot at by other gangsters all the time. Um, but, um, you know, so, um, you know, so, so we all benefit uh, potentially unequally from these institutions. They can all be subject to corruption. Um, you know, we all know about market power, monopoly party power in the market. Um, nobody denies its existence, least of all, say, Adam Smith, certainly, you know, Hyde himself didn't. And yet there is a certain classical liberal um, perspective going back to Adam Smith, actually, of saying, well, we know the monopoly power is pervasive. We know that, you know, the employers, you know, um, always get together to try to hold down wages, you know, below the market clearing price, um, that they conspire, you know, against the public interest. We know all these things for all these passages in Western nations. But Smith is determined to do absolutely nothing about it. He never suggests a government policy of antitrust. Um, you know, he doesn't recommend labor unions as a way of pushing back. Um, and I do. Right. So, you know, my response to the distortions of power in the market and monopoly is that you will sometimes need countervailing power. Um, if you look at Galbraith's book, American Capitalism, the, um, and the subtitle is something like the, the doctrine of countervailing power, or the logic of countervailing power. It's actually a very limited claim. If you look at the book, he doesn't say that labor unions are good because corporations are too big or too rich or something. 
He says labor unions are good when there's market power on behalf of corporations that have a, you know oligopoly position or monopoly position and bad otherwise. For instance, the building trades where it's actually the labor unions that have a sort of cartel, right? Um, so that's that's kind of my way of looking at it too with respect to the market. Um, but I think there's there's um, analogies with respect to all these institutions, and you know there's the proper response to this is to you know is for critics, people you know observing from outside to you know note these distortions and you know to challenge them and often to rally one of these institutions to push back against another. Often you know uh, the powers of representative democracy against the market, um, but the reverse is also true. Uh, when there's, you know, when there come to be abuses by the state, um, people, um, the, you know, the state's um, rules start to lose, for want of a better word, the government's rules, the illegitimate parties, you know, rules start to lose legitimacy, right? People engage in, you know, um, in black markets, in the informal economy. Um, and the market is sort of used as a way of challenging the government, of getting around it, of not paying taxes to a government seen as predatory or, you know, out for itself or its cronies. Um, and, um, so, you know, all these things actually have the, the exist in a sort of, um, rough clashing, you know, cacophony with one another. And I, I think it's good that they do. And I think you provide a lot of food for thought for those who may more than anything identify with a classical liberal perspective, for instance, and there's a lot of great critiques and points in there that I think people would do very well to think on. I'm just looking at the clock here. I had a couple of follow-ups, but I'm going to have to leave them for now because I do want to make sure we can shift gears to this other point I want to make because we've talked, we first we talked about Hayek and we got into other sort of discussions about, you know, market and non-market institutions and classical liberals and so on. But I want to tie, go back to something that you mentioned on the outset of our conversation, which I think is very important too. And you've mentioned a couple of times on the side throughout our chat that you don't on the other hand, you also don't like this idea of the, quote, the state or, for example, quote unquote, democracy deciding things in, in a mystified sort of way. Right. So, um, you know, if we, we, we often hear this sometimes and this politicians will say this, too, because it benefits them, of course, often if they win. You know, the American people have spoken. Our, quote unquote, democracy is going to go do this. The, you know, the government is going to go do this. And you, so you say, on the other hand, you also reject that sort of point of view that, in other words, uh, it seems that you think that, you know, the democracy or the democratic institutions are forums for tension. It's not this be all end all deciding factor, if you will. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, so um, sometimes I, in other countries, you sometimes hear a lot about the state that's less common in the United States. Right. You don't hear that, you know, much about the state with a capital S, you know, is going to provide for this or that. Um, people in the United States don't don't talk like that. Um, um, you know, in Britain, they do. And, and Canada's and many things that's in between. Um, the, um, but you do, you know, you do get a lot of we talk, right? You know, we have decided, the people have decided. If it's 51% to 49, they'll say, well, the American people have decided. Yeah, right. And this was done by, you know, George W. Bush did a version of this saying, you know, he'd won by 51%. And so, you know, he must have a mandate to privatize social security. And, you know, President Obama would do this all the time. He, he didn't like using the phrase the government, which probably pulled badly. He would say we right. yeah, all the yeah. time. We are going to do this. Um, by which he meant, you know, him and his, you know, government, which he, you know, rightly had charge of the executive branch. No one denied that, but that doesn't mean that it embodies the purposes of everyone in this sort of fictive first person plural. Um, in general, I'm a big skeptic of the first person plural. I tend to think it, you know, it is, it is often a tool of mystification when used in, in political debate. Um, 
people tend to have, you know, they're joined in broad political coalitions, but even then they have cross-cutting interests as well as common ones, and they have clashing opinions as well as common ones. You can see that as the Democrats try to pass a, you know, try to pass their economic agenda that um, they're in the same party, but they don't all believe exactly the same thing. Something one would think is obvious, and yet people are determined to obscure the fact. Um, in particular, I think that there's there's a there's a, a persistent tension. You see this in um, in Knight and Johnson's book, The Priority of Democracy, to say, okay, we have we have this a very a very hard headed idea of institutions. You know, we every all these institutions, much as I would, they describe them much as I would, as you know, ways of coordinating human activity in various ways. Um, but they say um, that because of these um, bargaining gains, because of these unequal gains, and all, all these things, you need a way of settling how to, you know, adjudicate these questions over who should, you know, get the who should get the surplus from uh, from the coordination um, gains from having these institutions. In other words, the institutions benefit all of us, but unequally. How do you settle these uh, disputes over how the gains should be distributed? Well, through democracy, um, you know, and but and they idealize democracy in this very Deweyan way that it's our collective way of argumentation and debate and adjudication. Um, and they surely must know that the way democracy really works is imperfectly, right? There's political parties that people take information shortcuts. Nobody actually knows all the issues that are going around. So they say, what does my person, the person I trust think on this issue? And then they go with that. Or what does the party I trust think? And then they go with that. People are getting information cues. There's all kinds of animosity based on party partisanship that leads people to you know, vote for X because it, you know, owns the partisans of Y, right? Because it crosses the other side rather than democracy being simply an information aggregating mechanism in this perfect way. There's, you could say there's a demos ex machina here, right? There's a, you know, even though they should know better, there's an idealization of the people and of democracy as a collective that makes its will felt that is, is that just rejects all the sort of, you know, highly informed rational choice and, um, you know, um, and rather skeptical views of any of every other institution, democracy is portrayed as, as, as an ideal umpire, as it were, because it must be, because there must be one. And, you know, if you see these things, if you see these matters as um, an unruly clash among institutions, each of which embodies our purposes and aims in different ways, then I think that must be that sense that there has to be a collective settlement of these disputes that, you know, embodies all of us and that it or authoritatively represents all. You don't have that. You don't need that. Um, and, um, you know, I do think my form of, of liberalism involves a lot of uncertainty, a lack of guarantees, but I think that's, that's the state of the world. I think it accurately describes how society works. If you want a guarantee that democracy with a capital D will embody our, you know, all of our purposes, in some you know ideal way, you're going to be disappointed. The same is true of the market, by the way. Absolutely, and and actually, I think I, I, I was going to say that that's a perfect connection to something I wrote down that I wanted to say. And our time's winding down here, so this will be our last question before the formal wrap up. But you know, one one last message I want to explore, and you were just tailing into that was you 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 said in one of your essays, "quote Institutions themselves are for most for most people most of the time wholly instrumental. They neither create nor embody many individuals' dreams." We should stop pretending they do or complaining that they do not. That's, that's very realist of you. Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, thank you. Um, and no, but and um, so I, I actually think these institutions um, 
or sometimes, I mean, so institutions require partisans, people who articulate their purpose and, you know, why they're good. Um, but those partisans are sometimes very poor guides to how most people experience them, right? So people who love the market, entrepreneurs, traders, and so forth, you know, um, sometimes they love, well, how could anybody, you know, um, not want things to be settled by the market? Look, it's fair, it's clean. It's, you know, um, money talks and BS plots. And yet, you know, a lot of, for a lot of people, their experience with the market is a job that they like adequately, perhaps, and, you know, but is a way to put food on the table. Right. That's mostly it. They don't see themselves as heroes of the market. Um, you know, similarly, there's some people who work in social services who, who love the welfare state, right? You know, who think, surely we want it to expand because there's people whom it doesn't serve properly, you know, that we can't meet all the needs that it might, which is always true. It's always true. And yet they don't realize that for some people, you know, they, they see it as, you know, the way their taxes are spent. Um, and they're going to acquiesce in that. They, they do think that they're human needs, but they, you know, they want the, that to be balanced against their taxes to, that they would prefer to spend on, you know, on their own personal uh, goals. We, we all sort of know, we all know that on one level, but we sort of forget it. And so the partisans of each of these institutions um, sometimes take a joy in them that, that they forget that um, most of us lack. Right. And not only that, as you were alluding to before as well, and that through that mystification, not only do they take it, take a joy in it that others might lack, but they also take a point of view that almost assumes whether they would say this consciously or not, that, well, everything's mostly running perfectly in this institution anyway, which is often not the case. That's right. Yeah. And I'm going to move us ahead to our, our, our uh, formal wrap up here. Uh, Andy, we, we've talked about a lot. I think it was a great conversation. Let me bring the conversation full circle. As you know, I want to make sure the guest has the last word in, on all our episodes here. So let me now officially ask you, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what realist liberalism is and what we can learn from it? In other words, if if you wanted to, someone to take away one or two or just, just a couple things or a few things from our conversation, what would that ultimately be? Yeah, so I guess um, it would be that liberal institutions in all their variety are both more, um, more universally valuable than they're often taken to be. Um, there's, they, you know, they work in the way of technologies that we don't quite understand, um, to accomplish purposes that we don't quite always know we have until we miss them, right? Most of us don't know how our cars work, and yet we would be very upset if we couldn't get to work, um, one morning. We don't have to be automotive engineers to value that mode of transportation. The same is true. I would view institutions the same way, right? It's not a matter of, you know, of, rational attachment or of deep moral attachment to them. People, um, people make use of them because they work, often don't appreciate them until they, until they don't. Um, and that makes liberalism um, both um, in some ways very robust, right? Uh, so David Hume said the rule of law was a hardy plant um, that was kind of counterintuitive. Um, you know, why should I allow people to get away with things if I don't like them? Um, just because the law says I can't lock them up. Um, but um, it's counterintuitive, but once people have discovered it, it will tend to persist because it's so obviously useful. Um, I think liberal institutions uh, in their variety are, are hardy plants in this way, but they also have a weakness. Um, and that's because a lot of people um, value them for different reasons. I often get quite upset when they encounter people who value them for, you know, for clashing reasons, or they don't value them at all. They don't think about them at all, um, which means that when liberal institutions are threatened, um, they don't have the kind of robust, um, you know, um, extremely um, conscious normative support 
um, that they would if they operated the way idealist liberals thought they did. You know, so if we endorsed all these institutions because we had we fervently believed in the principles on which they rest, um, then we would really be able to defend them at all times against those who seek to um, to get around them or topple them, because um, institutions operate in this more technological way. They operate in this rough and ready way because they work to further people's purposes in, in ways they don't think about. That makes them vulnerable. That means that we won't necessarily rally to their defense as early as we need to. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. Andrew Sobel, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>